This is U.S. Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSC Stories. Today I'm joined by Yerik, who is adjunct and research associate professor at Dartmouth College and both studies and writes software to study the human brain. He's the founding director for the Center of Open Neuroscience, along with the creator of NeuroDebian, which is a software platform for neuroscience. And he's a lead of DataLad, which is another software tool to allow for version control and creation of metadata for data. We have so much to talk about, but first, can you take us back in time to when you were just starting your training and tell us how you progressed from day one at university to where you are now? Wow, my day one was a long time ago. That was probably 94 when I completed my high school and I came to study engineering for laser and optoelectronic systems degree. So that was fancy, it has nothing to do with programming. Even then I was already interested in programming because our high school teacher was really, really fostering culture of programming. So we had our computer lab, we could go and program and the time was completely different from now. That's what I'm jealous about current kids because back then, although it was already 90s, we didn't have internet. We had only Borland Pascal to program in on a floppy and with 10 megabytes hard drive. So we couldn't look up on GitHub. We couldn't look up on Google. We just had to study by the book and probably redo many things over and over again. But when I came to the university, I was still interested in programming, even though studying for engineering degree. So I participated in ACM competitions and just was coding for the lab, a system for analysis of our electronic recordings from the spine to do diagnosis. And then I came to the States in 2000 and started to work in Barack Perlmutter's lab. And he's computer scientist by his uh, education. And that was because programming was always of interest for me. It was really exciting times, but also it was this merge between neuroscience and computer science. So it was super interesting. And that's when I was introduced to Linux. Before that, I was all Windows guy. And that's how it went. I started programming, continued programming, and then more and more programming. And I found similar minded people (laughs) because internet was out there. And it was really exciting to see that people who are just out there doing great stuff and I don't need to redo stuff I do (laughs) and we could do stuff together. So that's how I've met Michael Hunke in probably 2004 or five when we were bashing together on the FSL mailing list. And then we realized, oh, we're using the same software. Let's make it easy for us and for others to install it on our Debian systems. So that was pretty much inception of NeuroDebian project. And then probably a year after, after we realized that we have the same amount of kids, the same number of wives, which is one, not the same one. And we realized that we were doing the same study. So we are using machine learning for neuroimaging data analysis. And that's how another toolkit was started, PyMBPA. So that one helped many people. So they didn't have to re-implement those methods. We could do it just once. And it just kept going. And you asked me how it started, right? Not how it's going. <laughs> so I should stop here. No worries. A lot of our listeners probably aren't familiar with what Debian is. Could you tell us a little about it? Debian is the oldest and the only Linux distribution, which is governed only by the members of the Debian community. So it's completely 
democratic and community driven. And it started shortly after Linux appeared. And also Debian has really strong stand in assuring that principles of free software are actually respected. So all software which goes into Debian needs to be first curated, either licenses compliant and other things built without requiring network access for resilience. So that's what Debian is. It's pretty much your app store, but on Linux. And it's been there for over 20 years. So this curation, I'm guessing with NeuroDebian, you're a big part of that process. Could you talk specifically about what curation is and if you think the process has room for improvement? Is it still working after all those 20 years? Yes, that's a lovely question. And I could probably give a lecture for <laughs> that one. So main aspects are that it's conformant to Debian free software guidelines which is the same terms as open source initiative. It, they're pretty much born from the same source. The license which is applied to the product is truly open, that we could use it for any purpose, right? That we could modify it, that we could distribute. And typically it's also requires us to verify that the licenses of the projects, which this project you are considering are compatible with your license. So you need to go through all the code, verify that the licenses are first of all stated, that the copyrights stated, and that neither of present information is conflicting with the freedoms. That software could be used under free software guidelines of Debian. The second biggest aspect is to make sure that that software builds reliably using the rest of the Debian ecosystem and the packages which are provided. It's quite common now to just bundle all third-party dependencies into one monolithic ball, right, and ship this product to the users. How Linux distributions work typically, they work differently, that there is shared responsibility. If there is a package for a core library, let's say ITK, which is one big thing. If another project uses ITK, they shouldn't just bundle ITK inside of it, but their product should be building reliably with the ITK provided by Debian. Why is it important? If any bug found, especially security-related bug found in the library, you could fix it in a single point, in a single package, instead of, oh, let's patch all the versions of the library and all packages, bundles, which are available throughout the system. And I've mentioned that Debian exists there since 94. And of course, we are not using the same tools or it's not even in the same shape as it was back then. So there is evolutional process from how it evolved, but it kind of survived quite well through time. So whatever engineering decisions in how to organize Debian build infrastructure were established back then, they're still holding. And there is official document Debian policy, which kind of mandates that this is how things should be done. And of course, there are ways for things to improve. Let's say I really love how Conda Forge established their built infrastructure on GitHub. It's really convenient. GitHub is definitely my favorite social network, and it's too bad that it wasn't around in 1994, so Debian could maybe have some tighter integration with it. To step back for a second, let's say that I'm a software developer. I'm familiar with Debian, installing packages, but I don't have 20 years of experience and I want to create a package. It sounds like it would take quite a bit of time to become expert at this process. So what resources or advice would you tell me to start? 
to become expert at anything, right? It takes time. But to get started, there is even Debian package inside Debian, which is called packaging-tutorial, which comes with PDF file, pretty much, which is presentation on basic principles of what Debian package is and basic tools which could be used to build package. And this is not the holy grail or the only way to do it. For your field, let's say, if you're looking for packaging Go application approach might be somewhat different from packaging Python applications. And that's where you better go to corresponding team within Debian, which exists for many application-specific kind of endeavors. Let's say there's Python modules packaging team, there is Debian science for packaging generic, any types of scientific software. So basically, go ask Google for, insert language of choice, Debian packaging, and you're likely to find a team that could help you or examples. For NeuroDebian, how many packages are you actively maintaining? And what I really want to ask is how you do all that, how you act as a maintainer and the lead of several projects and as a research associate professor. I mean, that's a ton of responsibility. When do you break? <laughs> I did break. Hopefully never. But yes, we welcome help for anybody who could help. And so currently, I don't know, within your Debian itself, maybe not that many. And depending on definition, maintain how actively, right? Mm -hmm. It might also differ. As I mentioned, we started this project from solving our own problem. So primarily packages of interest for us in our day-to-day -day practice are getting priority. So how many actively? Probably it's just under 20 at the moment, although maybe within NeuroDebian itself, we maintain maybe 40 or 50 or 60. I don't know. I <laughs> at some point, probably I checked what is total number. But also what we are trying to do is to offset or seek help from other teams. Let's say Debian Med team is really productive and they are really, they established really nice flow for also new contributions because it's really nicely standardized. And some packages which we see that, okay, now we are not really interested in maintaining them. We just push them into Debian Med team, which we are also part of. So NeuroDebian is not yet another derivative. NeuroDebian is, first of all, it's pretty much team within Debian which also works with other teams. And then we also provide just this additional apt repository, which where we build backports for Debian and Ubuntu distributions. But we are still working within Debian system, ecosystem. So whenever we feel that, okay, we, we cannot maintain this package any longer, which happened, let's say Pandas. Originally we packaged Pandas or scikit-learn, right? So we packaged and maintained scikit-learn within Debian, but then there was more demand that we could handle. So, we, and Debian science people came out like, oh, would you be interested if we take it under umbrella of Debian science project? We said, sure. And that's how it got off our hands. <laughs> there is always more work than what we are doing. Number fluctuates, <laughs> actively maintain packages, but primarily it's those which we use in our daily, uh, daily life. Can you talk more about what being a research associate professor entails other than working on NeuroDebian? It's a position which allows me to obtain my own funding, grants primarily from, let's say in our case, it's NIH and NSF funding. So I become my own professor. So I don't have to teach. I do teach from time to time programming to our freshly admitted graduate students, but otherwise I don't have obligation to teach. I just have to work on the projects, which I myself applied for, 
So it kind of opens all the doors to whatever you want to do. And that's how I managed to do it, that all those projects, they relate to the projects you've mentioned. Neurodebian is a big part of many infrastructural solutions within our projects. DataLab is one of our projects, which was born from initially trying to solve a problem in Debian and Linux distributions that they are not really well geared for distributing big data sets, right? So that's how DataLab was born. And all those solutions, then the archive, Repronium project, they all use the projects which we developed. So pretty much I am just not a professor, but software developer at large. Do you find it stressful that your salary isn't on hard money and needs to be maintained with grants? Of course, but uh, first of all, I always had really receptive mentor, James Haxby. That's how we started our projects. Me and Michael Hanke, I've mentioned before, came as a postdoctoral fellows with his lab, but he encouraged us to do whatever we feel necessary to make pretty much a science a better science. <laughs> and software and data makes a big part of it. So although I'm pursuing also research projects, primarily it's software development, it is somewhat troublesome when you think that, oh, money will end. But we have so many problems to solve. <laughs> there is, as long as you apply and you have strong network of collaborations, I think it's feasible to obtain funding these days to do cool stuff in science. It's pretty much like with any other job. At any other job, funding is not guaranteed. You could be fired at any moment <laughs> with some warning ahead of it, but it's the same stuff. That's a fairly refreshing perspective. The tendency is to associate this kind of soft money with constant worry, but you write that no job, regardless of whether it's an industry or academia, is really a sure thing. So job security aside, do you find that you get to do things on a day-to-day -day basis that you enjoy? For example, do you have some days when you have to focus on grant writing and you feel super grumpy about it? Yeah, sure, sure. But that's life. Actually, that's what makes our life so pleasant to some degree. It's not always, oh, I'm developing this single piece of software for the rest of my <laughs> next five years, right? There is a huge spectrum. So we write papers, we write grant proposals, we write software, we test software, we integrate software, we talk to other people. We present at the conferences, we present just locally. So we convert people. So there is so many activities that Switching between them, it makes it not that mundane. And yes, writing grants sometimes is not fun, but when you look at what you've produced, and especially if it gets funded, you say, hmm, well done, right? And then you switch to another task. So is it the case that publication is heavily involved in validation of your work? In other words, when you create new software, do you need to write a publication alongside it to get attention or respect from the community? Oh, well, it's still desired, <laughs> but you know, let's say in our case with DataLed project, we still haven't published our paper, although it's in the works already for years, because to some degree, as project moves on, we thought that initial idea how we should present DataLed, it's already different, right? So it's so much more now than what we wanted to present originally. So we start to rethink it. And to some degree, sometimes writing software is better just to write in paper about it. Typically, you publish a paper so people could cite the paper when they use your software. With initiatives such as research identifiers, RIDs, and Zenoda providing your DOI for any GitHub repository or release of it, you could have citation even without having a paper. 
paper becomes less and less critical piece to present as scientific software, I would say. I've noticed that too. And personally, I don't any longer feel this impetus to publish, but instead I really have this focus on writing good documentation and then sharing it and pointing at it and say, hey, if you have this problem, this thing here can help you read about it here. Uh, I'll give a quick shout out though to the Journal of Open Source Software, JOS, which is ideal in that you can write a really short paper, usually in under an hour, and then just link to this documentation that you've written that already has all those details. And hands down, I've had the best peer review of my code, better than any more, quote, established journal via JOS. And so maybe something like that would work really well for Data Lab if you do want to have a paper on it. Yeah, shoot out to JOS. I thought to mention it, but then forgot. <laughs> Indeed, those papers are so succinct and they're pretty much pointers, right? What is out there, but also which go through review, peer review process. And so far, I've heard only really positive feedback. Maybe that's what we should do, <laughs> right? Just publish in JOS and forget about classical papers about software. I highly support that. I want to dig a little deeper into your experience as a maintainer because while it's common to contribute to a lot of projects, it's much less common to be a lead maintainer for not just one project, but a ton of projects. So I'll ask a general question. What does it take to maintain a huge software project like this? For example, what were your expectations? What have you learned? And what are some of the attributes that make it sustainable? Oh, well. There is so many aspects, I guess. First of all, I think it's always worth keeping in mind that we're all humans. And also, I'm usually coming with, not prejudice, but with initial thought that we are all with good intentions. Because all correspondence which is done through email or GitHub issues quite often doesn't convey emotional content of how you're trying to ex express yourself. In some cases, we are not even first native language. Uh, English is not our first la native language. Sometimes it's hard to deliver what you're trying to say. And in any interactions, such barriers where people misunderstand each other and take negative as their bias to start with, they just ruin relationships or cause some turmoil and heavy discussions where there was nothing really to start from. In our case, I just was super lucky to meet people such as Michael Hanke, with whom we worked for years. So we established already quite synergetic workflow, I would say. So I guess with different teams, different strategies. There is no one recipe which would work for everybody besides just, again, keeping in mind that there are humans on the other side. That's really good advice. I noticed this exact same thing when I first started contributing. And what stuck out to me when I contributed to particular communities, and it doesn't really matter which ones, I kind of felt like people were being cold or a little bit mean. And since I was a new contributor and I didn't really know what to expect, I found this really upsetting. You can't really tell emotion on GitHub. Sure, they've, they've added some more emojis, but it's not really that great. In retrospect, for one of these communities, it was the case that the developers had some issue with me and my intuition wasn't off. And I chose to stop contributing and that was what was best for me. But the other community, they weren't being mean. The issue was that their culture didn't match my expectations for it. Their culture was one of being straightforward, of being very blunt. And it was very successful because they would just say directly, oh, there's a problem, fix it like this, that's wrong, this is the right way to do it. And I learned to adjust my expectations 
working with the same community became very pleasant because it wasn't wrapped in this sort of American tradition of making things really nice. You know, they'd say, oh, this is wrong, fix it, instead of something like, well, you know, you might consider changing this, or it's, it's really great, but, you know, just do away with all that and get to the point. At the same time, it's always that first moment when you're a new contributor, when you really have to feel out the others that you're talking to a little bit. Right. But having said that, it, many research projects, they're developed by just a few people. There is just not enough people to have somebody who could be this gateway for new contributors into the community, who would be that nice person, right? Mm -hmm. Just, oh, it's Grumpy Me and, and Michael. If there was somebody who knows what's happening and could guide people into, let's say, BIT community now, uh, BIT is Brain Imaging Data Structure Standard, which includes creating specification for data, but also writing tools. And that ecosystem is so rich now. There is so many people that you could have these tiers, right? There would be people who would be really welcoming you to the community, and then everything looks, you know, really nice. It's when you get enough people, I would say. So human power is behind it. Interesting. So do you think the success of an open source project, while there are many variables, do you think that one of them is having at least one nice person on that original list of maintainers that draws in other nice people, and then subsequently the number of nice people grows and makes the project welcoming versus comparison to another project where you have a bunch of ornery folks that scare everyone away and once they're older and they retire, the project isn't really sustainable? I guess it depends on the project. Let's say if you look into Linux kernel itself, any dialogue on the formal mailing list should be really technical. Probably if somebody tries to contribute who has no clue or little clue, he will be just forwarded some email, oh, read this first before you do this. Because it also takes time to bring somebody up to speed. Maybe some projects which are having capability to invite people and actually benefit from their contributions. That's when indeed having some person who will be dedicated pretty much by the team, okay, you manage all new contributions and try to guide them and teach them and whenever they're ready, then come ping us so we could review the work. So this multi-tier hierarchy would be useful there. Yeah, I've, I've never thought about it like that. There are actually multiple levels of maintainers that serve as entry points for different kinds of contributors, and larger projects that are more successful are able to handle entry points for experienced developers, or on the other hand, someone who is fairly new and needs a little bit of hand-holding. So, what would you say is the hardest thing about being an open source maintainer? Just, just pick one. Hardest thing? There is too much work. Too much work. <laughs> <laughs> Which could be done, <laughs> right? If you look at the data-led issues tracker, some people just get scared from it because it's probably around 500 open issues and then 2,500 closed issues. There is lots and lots of work to be done. Whenever I start or approach a new project, and you've probably seen that, I'm looking out first. Maybe there is already something like that in the ecosystem, so I don't need to do it myself. And quite often you still run into the problem that, okay, you need to start something new. And amount of work out there is just outstanding. So that's the hardest thing. Huh. Okay, so what is the most rewarding thing about being an open source maintainer? Well, rewarding. It's not money. <laughs> Sometimes it pleases when people know you, people whom you don't know, know you. But also it's sometimes really rewarding to discover 
that there is indeed the human on the other side. Like you talk to people, like we've never met, I believe, in person. Maybe I feel like we've met, maybe. But because we talk so much, like now it's blurry, right? But it's really nice then to meet people. And it's rewarding to see that actually you have even more in common when you start talking in person in person. And I think it just helps to be a happy man or woman. Let's be gender neutral. Or a happy dinosaur. <laughs> happy dinosaur, <Okay>. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that's most rewarding to me, I think, to stay sane by seeing direct effects of your work. If you could look into the future a little bit, what element of change would you want for either your institution or open source that would make your life better in some way? Oh boy, I was, I was blessed, I think, so far. Institutions, they, they're trying to do many great things here at Dartmouth as well all kinds of hours where they educate students about open science as a whole. So what could be done better? It's pretty much that more of open science and open software would become part of our day-to-day -day lives. It's still quite often that choices are made at the institutional levels, which lock you into some platform, which you cannot really work with. It breaks interoperability, it makes it difficult. And then even if you adopt it, because it's a commercial solution, they sometimes switch to another one. And then you need to reestablish your workflow again. So it makes it inefficient at times. So I would say given stronger consideration to open solutions. Do you want to quickly touch on what your lab is studying on the neuroscience side of things? Sure. Well, my lab, I used to be a part of Jim Hexby lab as a postdoctoral fellow who is interested in pretty much establishing new approaches for how we analyze brain data. And that's how PyMVPA was born. Then there was development of new methods such as hyperalignment. And then when I became my own player, I am interested in the research projects which would make a science a better science. There's many problems we need to solve, not in the software per se, but in discovering what would be the better practices, how we approach research, how we could use phantom QA data from our MRI scanners to provide additional information for analysis of real data. Software scanners, they're written and made by humans, so they all might have bugs. And these research projects, I'm trying to pursue in the research projects, which will assure that we have better understanding what we are analyzing, and we are taking into account all possible sources of variance in our data. Looking back on the last decade, what have been the biggest changes in the neuroscience ecosystem? And do you see that the technology is going to continue changing? And if so, how would you want it to change? The ecosystem of science in neuroscience changed dramatically. Open solutions and data sharing and pre-registration all those came pretty much flowering now, although still not everybody shares the data, not everybody publishes their code, but there is dramatic difference. And either we will just not use fMRI and EEG and some new technologies would emerge. I don't think so. All of those technologies give us different perspectives on the same phenomenon. What I hope us to achieve is that we will collect even more versatile data sets, which would be conjoined acquisition of different modalities, but also figure out how to deal with that data. As I've mentioned, you know, sometimes we don't know all the factors which contribute to what this data is. 
And now with all the new methods, optical imaging and electrophysiology, really high dense arrays of electrodes, we are getting somewhere where we're having so much data of which we are using just like a tip of an iceberg. So we would take terabytes of data, extract megabytes of data from terabytes, <laughs> and then use that as, oh, that's how underlying biological process going on. No, we just disregard it. <laughs> what is it? 99.99% <laughs> of information from what we acquired and went with what we know. So I hope that within 10 years, we'll get, first of all, hardware capacity to do more sophisticated data analysis, but also that we'll come up with the methods which would allow us to take better advantage of the data which we collected. Interesting. So we're just coming up on time. Actually, I think we're a lot over time. But maybe to finish up, you can share with us the most interesting thing that you've learned about the human brain. <laughs> oh, boy. Most interesting thing. I don't know. It's all interesting and nothing comes in specifically into my mind. It's there. It's the brain. And we know so little about it. That's probably <laughs> most I've discovered that despite all our centuries of brain research, the amount of information of how we really know how things work in our brain is really, really rudimentary, I would say. Uh, we don't have strong models to explain any of neural activities. And by explain, I mean not just to show statistical significance that we could, you know, establish some explanatory power, but really to explain that, oh, this region is doing this function. And it even boils down to us unable to describe possible function because we don't have right words to describe it. And that's where Russ Polder cognitive atlas kind of comes into mind as well. That the terms we operate, they stem from the research of centuries ago. I hope that we also will come up with the ways to describe what we are observing in the brain. Well, the good thing about all of this is that there's lots of job security since there are so many things to still work on. I bet. I bet. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am continually impressed by how you seem to manage a million different projects and centers. And I sometimes wonder if you're a human, but you sound fairly human. So anyway, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank sure. you, Vanessa, for having me. Sure.